Well, Merry Christmas. You know, y'all dress up real nice. Just uh, trying to impress your family, aren't you? It is wonderful to be together. I actually didn't, uh, I didn't look at the calendar to see when the last time would have been that we had uh, Christmas Eve on a Sunday, but um, it's been probably seven years, something like that. So uh, it's good to have this experience, and we do look forward for those who are able to be with us tonight. We uh, always have a special candlelight service. Um, as Matt said, that will be a, a shorter one, as will um, the sermon, and uh, that'll be kind of connected to this same passage, which, by the way, is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. So if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me, and uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew right there in front of you, and that's the smaller dark brown um, hardback book you see there. You'll find this on page 724 or 762 of the pew Bible there if you're using that one. Luke chapter 2, we'll get to that in just a, a moment. But you may be familiar with the book titled, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Um, it's a book about pregnancy. For, um, so, so for a woman who's expecting a baby, this book would tell them what they can expect from the pregnancy. And uh, it answers questions like, when can I take a home pregnancy test? How can I eat for two if I'm too queasy to eat for one? Can I work right up until the time that I deliver? Will I know labor when I feel it? Those are good questions, aren't they? They're all in the book. You can get it from Amazon.com. I'm kidding. Uh, they're all there, what to expect when you're expecting. Well, there, there are several things about Mary's pregnancy that one would not expect when you're expecting. We've already uh, read about some of those in the last couple of weeks. You would not find answers to the kinds of questions she might have asked about her pregnancy in that book. And, and so I've titled this message, What Not to Expect When You're Expecting. If you saw that on the front of the bulletin and you were confused by that, well, I understand. Maybe you still are. But uh, what not to expect when you're expecting, it was an exceptional pregnancy that gave birth to an exceptional child. And we read about it in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And so let's look there now together. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, and to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David." to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. 
And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, as always, we thank you for the time and the service where we come to open your word to hear from you in it. That is our conviction, Lord, that the scripture is breathed out by you, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that you have, that you have spoken to humanity in the written word. And not only that, Lord, but that you give life to it, that it is living and active, that it continues to find new places in us, dark places that need to have light shown on them, Lord, um, hurt places that need to be healed, broken places that need to be restored. Lord, you know all of the needs represented in this room. And in the short time we have together and all the things that could be said from this passage of Scripture, Lord, you know what needs to be said. And so we just ask, as always, that you would speak, Lord, your word by your Spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Um, those who have been here for the past couple of weeks know that there are, as I alluded to earlier, some exceptional circumstances surrounding this pregnancy, things not to expect when you're expecting. So first, an angel appeared to a priest named Zechariah in the temple and told him that his old barren wife would bear a son, that they would name him John, and he would be the forerunner of the Messiah. He would be John the Baptist, we'd learn later. And then the same angel appeared to Mary and told her she would conceive a child by the Holy Spirit, that he would be named Jesus, that he would sit on the throne of David forever. And then 
Mary went to visit Elizabeth for three months, the last trimester of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And when she walked in the door, the, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped in the womb, you may recall, such that the, the first messianic encounter occurs between two unborn babies. You can meditate on that one over lunch. And now, several months later, she's made this trip to Bethlehem in the passage we just read. And once again, we add, we add things to the list not to expect when you're expecting. You would not find uh, answers uh, to some of these in the book. But don't expect to travel five days away from home when you're due. Right? Did you, for those who have had, uh, you know, when, when, when we were um, expecting our children, I think it was around 34 weeks pregnancy, they said, you, I don't remember how far we could go, but it wasn't far enough. I was like, we couldn't go far enough from home to do anything, so like we had to stay home. You don't travel five days away from home at the time of your due date. Don't expect to deliver your baby out in the elements and then lay it in a feeding trough. If you looked up that question in the index of what to expect when you're expecting, you would not find, is it okay to lay my baby in a feeding trough? No. <laughs> Unless your baby is the savior of the world and then the rules don't apply. Don't expect angels to announce everything. You know, this is, so, so now, we've, you know, we've got uh, like pretty much, you know, your whole life can be put on Instagram, right? Whatever you do, you take a good picture of it, you put it on Instagram, show everybody what you did. Mary's like, I got you one up here. I just have angels running around telling everybody in advance what's going to happen, and then I'll let y'all see it, you know, drop the mic moment there. Don't expect shepherds and maybe some of their animals to visit a newborn baby. Those would not be the kind of sanitary conditions you'd be expected to provide. A number of things about the pregnancy itself, not to expect, but at the same time, there were expectations of the child that wouldn't be met either. Because, well, let's look at what uh, verse 11 says first, because we have a culture, the Jews are expecting a Messiah. Let's look at what it says. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They're expecting a Messiah, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, but they were not expecting one like the one they got. He would be a king, but not one who would set up an earthly kingdom. He would be Lord, but not one who would rule by military and political force. And he would be Savior, but not one who would save them from the oppression of foreign enemies like they were hoping for. So let's consider briefly this morning what it does mean that Jesus is Christ, Lord, and Savior. First of all, he is Christ. The Greek word Christos means anointed or the anointed one. It is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. In fact, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, which I think was around the second or third, probably third century uh, BC, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, the word Messiah 
was translated as Christos, the word from which we get Christ. So in other words, Christ is not Jesus' last name. He wasn't the son of Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is a title. To call Jesus Christ is to say Jesus Messiah. And this is significant in that the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah, but also significant in light of what they were expecting. And again, this is familiar territory to many if you've been around uh, church for very long. You, you know kind of the tension between those two, what they expected and what Jesus actually brought. You know, there's a sense in which the entire Old Testament predicts a messianic age. And there's some variation uh, of what people understood the Messiah would be like. Sometimes they expected a golden age similar to the experiences that they had had under kings David and Solomon. And in fact, they sort of expected a Messiah, an individual, who would reign in a golden age like that. Um, At other times, they just thought of the people of Israel, or, or the Messiah sort of being a personification of the people of Israel. They, they, they thought of messianic prophecies as being fulfilled in that way, that they were collectively this person of God. So the, the expectations varied somewhat, but given the centuries of, of oppression and subjugation that the Jewish people had lived under, For hundreds of years at the time of this story we just read, many were probably ready to receive a king who would restore power and greatness to Israel. A few weeks back when we were talking about on the the, the first Sunday in Advent, we talked about the Assyrian invasion and how they utterly wiped out the northern tribe that was known as Israel, the ten tribes of Israel. They utterly wiped them out of history. And really from that time forward, that was 722 B.C., Jerusalem was spared, you may remember, and then the Babylonians got them not too, not too long later. But in that part of the world, it went from the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Medo-Persian Empire to the Greeks to the Romans. It was one empire after another dominating that whole region of the world. Israel being located in a strategic place geographically, so they're sort of overrun by it all the time. Again, the point being that by this time, many, many people in Israel are ready for that kind of deliverer. And interestingly enough, the text here identifies by name the Roman emperor under whose rule that they were living at the time of Jesus' birth. And not only was he presently the face of oppression for Israel. So the the Romans were the ones under whose rule they lived at that time. Not only is the emperor the face of it, he probably fit the profile of what many Jews would have hoped for in a Messiah. Uh, His his name, of course, here we see in verse 1 is Caesar Augustus. And Augustus was the great-nephew of Julius Caesar. Uh, And in 27 BC, he became the first emperor of Rome. So the Republic had existed for, you know, centuries. It collapsed. There's the whole debacle around Caesar himself that, um, you know, Shakespeare wrote about. But Augustus 
his great nephew, became emperor in 27 BC. His real name was actually Octavian, and the Senate gave him the title Augustus, which means majestic or venerable. The reason I mention that is because he became someone that they thought of as being worthy of worship. Octavian Caesar became Augustus Caesar. They regarded him as majestic and venerable, worthy of veneration and even worship. He brought order and prosperity to the Roman Empire after a long period of civil war and for his success was worshipped in many parts of the empire. And uh, in fact, with him began the emperor cult where emperors were worshipped like gods. That began with Augustus Caesar who's mentioned right here. Now, again, I I go into that uh, mainly to say it sets up an interesting contrast between him and Jesus, now doesn't it? It, I think the point here probably in telling us that is is perhaps simply um, to explain how it came to be that Joseph and Mary, who were from Nazareth, ended up in Bethlehem when the baby was born. He's explaining how these events took place, and it happened during the reign of Caesar Augustus. But it's interesting that this contrast is painted for us because, because words like Lord and Savior and even gospel are used in association with Augustus. That's how people thought of him. Jesus is God's answer to that, but again, not the answer people were expecting. He said explicitly his kingdom would not be anything like that of Augustus or any uh, other to which they had been accustomed. He would usher in the kingdom of God, a kingdom in which heaven's authority would be extended to all things visible and invisible, including the powers of the earth. He described his kingdom in terms like these. In John 18, 36, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. John 6, 15, he says, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then Luke 17, 20 and 21 says, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So let's put that together and see what did Jesus say about the kind of king, the kind of kingdom he was going to have. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not going to come with signs you can observe. You'll not see it and say, it's there or it's here. If the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, such that when they tried to actually make him more the kind of king like Augustus Caesar was, he retreated to the mountain so, so it couldn't happen. His kingdom is not of this world. And I'm going to meddle a little bit, but you know, to listen to some evangelical Christians talk, you would think that in order for God's will to be done on earth, we need to ensure that American political power remains in the right hands. We've come to a place where we often speak more passionately and most frequently with a political voice rather than a prophetic one, preaching conservatism more loudly than we preach Christ. 
And I'm not discounting the importance of political involvement. In fact, I think in a democratic society, we have an obligation, a responsibility to steward well the power that is given to us as the people. But as we do so, we need a proper sense of proportion. And we do need to be concerned about what is the message that the world identifies with the church. And if our gospel voice is drowned out by our own shouts about earthly matters, we may find in the end that we've simply assisted people in gaining the whole world while they have lost their souls. And may it never be of the people of God because the, the child born in Bethlehem is the Christ, but his kingdom is not of this world. And I can tell I have left Merry Christmas territory for some of you, and so why don't I get us back to Bethlehem? Because he is not only Christ, he is Lord. The word translated Lord is the Greek word kurios, actually as far as I know, I don't, I don't know that it bears any uh, similarity or, or relationship to our word curious, but the word curios, and it's used in a variety of ways in the Bible. Sometimes it can be just a polite way of, of, of referring to somebody um, who you respect. And so like we would say, sir, in addressing somebody in authority, sometimes the word Lord is used in that sense. Other times it can be used to refer to um, the master of a slave, so an earthly Lord in that sense. And we, maybe a lot of times when I think of the word Lord in an earthly sense, I think of, you know, sort of the feudalism, um, sort of the lords and the serfs and that kind of thing, if you remember that part of, of history. But the master in that sense. And many times it is used with reference to God himself. Um, in the Greek translation, again, of the Old Testament, this word, kurios, is the word that's used to translate the name of God, Yahweh. So it's used almost 7,000 times uh, for, for that word alone in the Old Testament, about 9,000 total. And, and, and that means that numerous times in the New Testament, Lord is referring to God himself, and sometimes Jesus is the one being identified as such trying to connect some dots here. I'm going, going somewhere with this. That the word Lord used sometimes to refer to just sir or, a per, or it's a respectful address. Sometimes it's an earthly master, but sometimes it's God himself and the context suggests that. Um, and Jesus is the one being called a Lord in that respect. In last week's message, we saw Elizabeth referred to this embryonic Jesus as her Lord. When her son, years later, John the Baptist, cried out in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. He was quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, which referred to the Lord God himself and identifying Jesus as the Lord that they were preparing the way for. And Hebrews chapter 1 cites Psalm 102, which again refers to Yahweh and applies it to Jesus. It says, You, Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never come to an end. Psalm 102 says that in reference to the Lord God, Yahweh. Hebrews 1 
quotes that verse in reference to Jesus himself. So when the angel says here, he is a savior, Christ the Lord, he's effectively saying to the shepherds, this baby is the Messiah who is God himself. That prophecy in Isaiah 7:14 that says a virgin will bring forth a child and shall call his name Emmanuel. He's God with us. Here he is. God with us, the Lord. But he's not a Lord who rules by force of law or military might. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact, as believers, he does rule. He, he is Lord. A master is to be obeyed. And uh, to call Jesus Lord is to suggest that our lives are submitted to him and we obey him. And one of the errors that we can slip into, and, uh, and, and throughout Christian history, we tend to slip better than we stand still. <laughs> so we sort of slip from one extreme to the other, perhaps. But one of the errors we can slip into is that in, in emphasizing relationship with Jesus, we de-emphasize obedience to him to a fault. Recall what he said to his disciples in Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now that doesn't mean that our good works and obedience contribute something to our salvation. So it's not we believe and profess him. And then we add something to it with our good works. That's not the message of the New Testament. But what the message is, is that just saying Jesus is Lord is not enough. That genuine faith is accompanied by obedience to him and a life that's increasingly obedient and conformed to his likeness. It's meaningless to call someone Lord if he's not obeyed. That, that word simply has no meaning, especially if that Lord is Lord of all of creation. As the saying goes, either Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. He is Lord. But he's not only Christ and Lord, but he is Savior. In Matthew's narrative of Jesus' birth, an angel appears to Joseph and tells him, as we read in Luke, that Mary has conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. He will save people from their sins. If you grew up around church, you probably heard people when you were younger attempt to explain the gospel in simple terms that you could understand as a child. And of course, understand as a child. We're grateful that people did that for us as well. Some of us came to know Jesus as a child or because of those things we were taught. But we also may have come away with somewhat of a trivialized understanding of our sin condition. That we may simply think of it as the bad stuff that we do or, or, or you know, things that displease God or even things that, that violate His law. And those things are true, but they, they understate 
the condition that sin leaves humanity in. And so let me point to two uh, passages in the New Testament that capture that a little bit, because, because here's the point. He is Savior, and what is it that we need to be saved from? Well, Ephesians 2 says you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. You were, you were with him, aligned with him, and were by nature children of wrath. John 8, 34 through 36 says, uh, out of the mouth of Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He who sins is a slave to sin. We, we've been taken captive by our sin. This is not simply that we've done some bad things. Hey, everybody's done something and we need to be saved from that simply in the sense of forgiveness like we think of but we're we're captive to it we're taken captive by it and the son sets us free so god who is lord of all creation visible and invisible is lord over this outlying province called earth i don't know if you're familiar um, with any concept on a map of uh, the Roman Empire, or even the Greek or Persian empires before it, quite expansive when you think of where Rome is and how far it reached. And, you know, there were some outlying areas that it, at times uh, there were little um, disruptions that would arise and that kind of thing, little rebellions that they would have to go in and put down and that sort of thing. God is Lord of all creation, visible and invisible. This outlying province called earth is in rebellion against him. So I want to I sort of paint the story the New Testament tells us um, in this sort of extended word picture here. Every one of us has been taken captive by rebel forces and has become a willing participant in the rebellion. And soon the king is coming back to restore order. And at that time, he will render judgment against all of those who have taken up arms against him. And it will be swift and it will be certain. But he has sent a herald out ahead of him with good news. He's offered a way of escape. And it's this. Lay down your arms and surrender. Flee to the chamber of his dear son. And when the king returns, enter his presence. Enter the presence of the king with the son. And you'll be accepted as a beloved child. Now, I don't know if you're following that. Maybe it's too warm in here and you're, uh, and you're about to nod off. 
But see, he didn't just say, like, there's no story written that way. That a king who comes in to restore order, who shows mercy on somebody, he might say things like, spare his life, but strip him of all his possessions and banish him to an outlying kingdom, you know, an outlying part of the kingdom. We'll let him live, but separate him from his family, take everything he has, and so forth. I'll tolerate him, I'll spare his life. That's, that's not even close to what the New Testament says. If you enter the presence of the king with the son, he'll receive you as a son. That's crazy good. That is crazy good news. That's scandalously good news. And that is the gospel. That is the gospel. It is that sense in which he is savior. There was something we needed to be rescued from, and he has done the work. And that's the offer that's been extended flee to the son now some may say you know i'm not even sure there is a king if there was a king why hadn't he done something about all this mess here if there was a king he should have he should have come already why hadn't he come already and the the bible says he's not slack concerning his promise to come he's just being patient toward you so that you have an opportunity to flee to the Son. And others may say, you know, I've gone too far. I've done too much. Um, he doesn't want someone like me. Listen, I got more good news. He is not looking for a few good men. <laughs> God's got one good man. We've just been talking about him for the last 25 minutes the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's looking for a lot of messed up men and women. Anybody qualified? Good, you'll do. Don't try to make yourself presentable first. The Son will get you ready to appear before the King. That is his job to prepare us, to present us holy and blameless before him in love to be received as a child ourselves. Flee to the Son. He is Christ. He is Lord. He is Savior. And those who surrender to him will never be the same. And that, beloved, is the, uh, that is the gift at Christmas wrapped up and presented in a manger. And I promise you, it is immeasurably, infinitely better than anything you're going to find wrapped up under your tree tonight or tomorrow. And I urge you by the mercies of God to receive that even today. Let's pray together. Would you join me in prayer? <clears throat> well, Lord, we do thank you for uh, the exceedingly unspeakably good gift that Jesus is to this world and, and is to those of us who have received him, who know him. Lord, we marvel. It's hard to even describe how this could be. But it is because you've made it so. And we thank you for that gift, Lord. And I do pray for everyone here. Lord, for, for those who have believed and have trusted Christ, that they would continue to trust him, that they 
The, the, the needs are inexhaustible for us to need to flee to the Son. We continue to find refuge in Him and salvation in Him. We continue to, to drift back and go astray into our own ways. We, we continue to need to live by the grace we find in the gospel. And so, Lord, would you call us back there in all the ways that we have need of those represented right here in this sanctuary this morning. Lord, but for those who have never trusted in Christ, maybe those who said, I'm not even sure there is a king, maybe those who have said, he doesn't want somebody like me, or, or maybe others who have some other reason why they've not responded to that wonderful invitation. Lord, would you remove the veil from their eyes that would keep them from seeing the truth for the, the splendor and the goodness that it is. Would you stir their hearts, Lord, to a place where they realize confession and repentance and surrender to Christ is the most liberating and empowering and joy-filling thing that one could ever do. I pray lives would be changed this Christmas because you've met um, those people in a way they've never experienced before. Lord, take our lives and make them what you want to make them of us. In Jesus' name, amen.